The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Take a moment and consider that there are thousands of Sumerian tablets, many of which have yet to be translated, nor appreciated by the mainstream. They lie dormant, first deciphered in the early 1800s. Around that time, the word cuneiform was coined. Since their deciphering, more tablets have been discovered. So far, they've been found to have inscribed on them the epics of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian creation story, and the Sumerian King's List. We have only just begun to dig into this ancient store of knowledge and wisdom. And great minds of our times have taken up the task of piecing it all together. Today, I present our returning guest, Esoteric Eddie, who's written a book all about this very subject. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Enjoy this episode with Esoteric Eddie. The oldest religious text that we have available to us is what is known as the pyramid text. They are physical writings inscribed on a few different pyramids in Saqqara, Egypt, going back to the third millennium BC, some of the oldest known religious texts. And um, they consist of about 4,000 different lines, and they're pretty strange to look at. And But they're, they're mostly incantations and chants that are meant to be um, stated and chanted as the pharaoh is being buried or prepared for the afterlife and 
When coupled with some of the later Egyptian cosmological tales, we find that in their creation story, the beginning of creation started with a darkness, a almost a watery darkness. And out of that watery darkness, the first consciousness was born, and that consciousness is known as Atum, A-T-U-M. And he's it's somewhat of an androgynous being. And then after Atum, the first consciousness born out of that darkness, the elements are born, you know, the, the raw elements that are sometimes personified as sentient. And then after the elements, the gods are born. I think um but yeah it's titled the anunnaki theorem and so it's kind of my take on that whole thing i love it well shit let's get into it dude um you got any questions for me before we start oh man i'm ready to rock and roll cool me too well then we're rolling on both ends ladies and gentlemen here we are Back with a returning champion, someone who's been a guest on Illuminati Confirmed Episode 6, and then he joined us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast for Episode 179, and he's back to talk about his new book, The Anunnaki Theorem, Esoteric Eddie. Welcome back to the show. So, we don't need the how are yous and all that. We know you. You've been on Illuminati Confirmed. We've put you through the gauntlet. I have a question right out of the gates, you know. We never really, uh, well, we did talk about Lucifer on Illuminati Confirmed, but my question is, how did this evolve from Lucifer into the Anunnaki? Were these separate interests, or did your research for the first book blend into this next book? Well, it's it's actually the opposite. Um, So the Anunnaki Theorem was actually the first book I ever wrote, published it back in 2018 but it was horrible (laughs) Uh, it was just a horrible book so after i had a lot of success with the lucifer book because i put a lot of time into it put money into getting it edited um, i realized i had to go back and do my first book justice so i went back pretty much scrapped the entire book and rewrote it pretty much wrote an entire new book so my second book is is actually a revision of the first Mm. book that i ever wrote Okay, this is ringing a bell. I think we talked about this. I don't know if it was on air or off air, but I remember you saying that. And uh, that's really cool to be able to go back and uh, put the time that project deserved. And it's a subject that's very unique in this area. I don't know what you think, but I would say it's a little more mainstream than maybe like Tartaria, for example, or like... Uh, some of these ancient American theories that suggest there were other cultures here. More people have probably heard of, of Anunnaki, but how much of, of this, you know, do you think you've uncovered from a new perspective? Like, what approach are you taking for, for this subject? Because everybody should be familiar with Zachariah Sitchin, you know. He's got uh, he's got some some pretty interesting books on the subject. I've read them i have owned them for quite a while and i don't know my feelings have shifted over over time but when did you get introduced to anunnaki 
Yeah, man. I got introduced to it um, in high school, like 2009. And it's been a lifelong journey ever since I came across that information. But just like you and most people, probably my thoughts on it have changed too. And I have a more, you know, critical um, perception of, of Sitchin and his work. Still think he's fascinating and what he did for the community and for the world is fascinating. But my approach for this book was to just look at everything that we know from my own critical perspective as a scholar and um, the book, although the book centers around the Anunnaki, it's more of a comparative theology piece that just chronicles the concept of God in general and how it pro- how it has progressed from the earliest of our you know uh, times up until now. And there's a lot of things that I uncovered that I didn't know before writing the book. Yeah, it's interesting. Some people you know, express uh, suspicion with Sitchin because he claimed to translate these things. And it's interesting because there's so few uh, written records from that time period that, uh, you know, I, I imagine that we're only just beginning to have the science and the technology to be able to fully translate these things, you know? So I'm sure there's, there's gotta be more information out there, but uh, where would you like to start? Because I think people could use a, a refresher, you know, ancient aliens sort of brushes around this topic a lot. They, they talk about it in certain instances and others, they, they doubt it. And, you know, I've found that, Anunnaki, the most compelling piece of evidence for the veracity of this is is the fact that in southwest of North America, you have people, indigenous people, who who discuss a, a group of people who or beings that brought them underground. And I think phonetically, the words are almost exactly the same. I mean, it's it's like the difference between an N and a Z sound, right? It's like, a, a, or even right down to the same uh, word. You might be able to correct me there, but that sort of syncretism where you see that where multiple cultures have experienced these beings um, definitely yeah, adds some credence. The, the Anasazi. Mm, right, right, right. You're talking about the Anasazi and the Anunnaki. Well, and, and isn't there like a, the, the word Anunnaki in a language there means ant people or something to that effect? I think this is one of the things I probably misremembered from ancient aliens. I don't know if I'm right or not. Maybe. There is there is a story, though, about the ant people helping humanity during the flood mm. go into the inner earth. Right. But um, where to start? So there's a lot of information in my book and um, a lot of different ways we can approach it. But I think the most important thing about my book and really what it does is showcase why monotheism was needed and how monotheism was institutionalized and also shows that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and subsequently, you know, the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all were born out of the Anunnaki cultures, and in a way were renditions of the Anunnaki cultures, and phased out the Anunnaki 
for various reasons. And so what we need to understand and where we can start is that the Abrahamic faiths, you know, Judaism, um, Islam and Christianity, and there are other ones, but those are the major three, have been basically ruling this world for 2,000 years. But if you really look at the human timeline that we are currently a part of, which, you know, only stretches back about 6,000 years, six to 7,000 years, in that timeline, more than half of it, we as a race, a human race, were worshiping the Anunnaki. So it wasn't until fairly recently that we shifted away from that worship. And there's a reason why. And that's also a very important message that's in my book. All right. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, right now, it's, we're seeing a lot going on um, in Iran, you know, with all these women uh, denouncing the whole... Um, I forgot the name of the headdress that they wear. Oh, the they're, hijab. They're, there you go. Yep. They're denouncing the hijab and, and they're just wilding out. And I think it's fascinating, man. I think it's fascinating because I've always wondered how long are these Abrahamic faiths going to be able to rule? Because mm. they, they've only been around for about 2,000 years. And for the 4,000 years before that, it was we were living in Anunnaki world. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But I always wondered, like, how long are they going to last? They can't last forever, you know. Mm. But um, I feel like right now we're witnessing the, the destabilization, the crumbling of these Abrahamic faiths. And I don't know, either the book of Revelation is playing out or the age of Aquarius is playing out. It's, it's, it's one of the two or something altogether. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like that's a theme I don't know if it's if it's imposed or if it's something we're all just going to have to go through, but I wonder. You know, we we hear stories of uh, is it Tutankhamun who or or someone um, is I don't think it is Tutankhamun it, who Akhenaten Akhenaten is the Egyptian uh, pharaoh who had a very strange shaped cranium and he also uh, in, basically brought monotheism to egypt so are you, maybe i misheard you but are you suggesting that the anunnaki helped create the abrahamic religions or were the abrahamic religions more like a, a response away from the anunnaki religions they were definitely a response away from it mm. and i guess we can just get into it now yeah, get please. into the details and but before i get there we got to set it up a little bit and understand cool. that Again, all the Abrahamic faiths were born out of this. And, and even more than the, the, the Abrahamic faiths, like the Egyptian religion that you just brought up was also born out of this. For example, um, one of the oldest religious texts that we have available to us is what is known as the pyramid texts. They are physical writings inscribed on a few different pyramids in Saqqara, Egypt, going back to the third millennium BC, some of the oldest known religious texts. And um, they consist of about 4,000 different lines, and they're pretty strange to look at. And But they're, they're mostly incantations and chants that are meant to be... Um, stated and chanted as the pharaoh is being buried or prepared for the afterlife and when coupled with some of the later egyptian cosmological tales we find that in their creation story 
the beginning of creation started with a darkness, a almost a watery darkness. And out of that watery darkness, the first consciousness was born. And that consciousness is known as Atum, A-T-U-M. And he's it's somewhat of an androgynous being. And then after Atum, the first consciousness born out of that darkness, the elements are born, you know, the, the raw elements that are sometimes personified as sentient. And then after the elements, the gods are born. And then after the archetypal gods, humans are born. And in the Egyptian story, a later version of it, um, the humans rebelled against Ra, and then Ra killed many of us. And then they all dipped, they left to the heavens or wherever they went. And so similar to that story in the Old Testament, we also see the opening lines in Genesis state, as I will quote here, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So again, in, in Judaism, we have this, this imagery of darkness, and then the first consciousness, which is God, in this case, the um, you know, Judaic God, moving, moving upon these waters. And going from that, we have another very ancient religion known as Zoroastrianism. And I won't go too deep into it, but it's in my book. But Zoroastrianism um, was also a very archaic form of monotheism. It wasn't strict monotheism, but it was a, a, an archaic form of it, a precursor to it that actually many scholars have studied and concluded um, influenced Judaism, as I did in my Lucifer book a little bit. But Zoroastrianism was born out of the polytheistic world of the old Iranian or Persian world. And the Persians, much like most of that, that uh, area, the Western world and, and the Middle Eastern world, they were all born out of the um, Indo-European people. And it's still somewhat of a theory, but there's a lot coming out these days to that theory. But the theory states that there was a, a hub of people known as the Indo-Europeans who um, lived somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula and, and also um, like the Crimea and Black Sea area. So like central Eurasia. And at some point, about 1500 BC, all spread out. And from that original hub of people um, were born the Germanic and English and, and um you know, all these other Western languages and some of the Eastern languages as well. But one of those peoples, one of those branch of peoples was the Indo-Iranian people. And from them, we got the Vedas. And the Vedas influenced Zoroastrianism and modern day um, Hinduism. And again, these are some of the oldest religious texts. And in the, in the Rig Veda specifically, which is the oldest of the Vedas, going back to about 1400 B.C., we find the creation story of these Indo-Iranians. And again, in their creation story, which is, which is known as the Nasadiya Sukta, which I have a, um, an extended uh, 432 hertz version of on my uh, YouTube channel that you can meditate to, we find again the imagery of, of, of this darkness. And out of this darkness is created the, the first consciousness. And then out of that first consciousness, the elements and the humans and so on and so forth. So we see this reoccurring, and older than all of these is the Sumerian version, um, which is found in the Enuma Elish, and the most intact version of that is the Babylonian version, and in this story, we find this imagery again, and this story 
was so important to the Sumerians and the Babylonians that it used to be played out in their New Year festival every year. Um, but the opening lines, as I read here, also show that imagery. When in the height, heaven was not maimed and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, there was the primeval Apsu and the mother of the gods, Tiamat, their waters mingled together. And now this is thousands of years before the Bible's being written, um, at least a thousand or if not 1500 years before the Egyptian and the Zoroastrian and, and their Indo-Iranian versions are being written. So this is a very, very ancient version of that. So there's an obvious passing down of this wisdom of this darkness and this water and the consciousness being born out of it. And I don't mean to bring this up to go deep into the philosophy and what did it all mean. I mean to point this out to show that there is precedent in all of these world religions and cultures in the Sumerian stories. And a very obvious um, example of that is the flood story. Again, we don't have to go into it. We, we've all heard it. But again, it's obvious that the, the flood story in the Bible was taken from the Sumerian versions, versions in the uh, Atrahasis story and stuff like that. So we need to understand for one thing, you know, we, we, we absolutely have to understand that a lot of these Abrahamic faiths and, and even other world cultures were borrowing wisdom and stories and mythologies and whole characters in, in some instances from the Sumerian and Babylonian um, cultures. Right. There's this idea of the conquer versus the conquered, right? And the, the colonizer sort of uh, syncretically adopting the motifs of whatever civilization they're taking over. And then there's also just the cultural cross, you know, contamination, not to, you know, make it sound icky, but this transference of information that happens between trading groups. And yeah, it is such a, a hotbed of religions. And I love that you've connected it to these more arcane uh, sources like Zoroastrianism is is one of those for sure, definitely worth uh, worth examining. Uh, so, where do we continue? All right, so I think uh, one more thing to get into in that thread is um, the Bible, right? The Old Testament talks about mankind being created in Genesis one twenty six. And this is another very important example of how the Sumerian stories of the Anunnaki made their way into the monotheistic religions. So in the Bible, mankind is created in Genesis 1.26. And if you were to open up any English version, um, for the most part, it might be different in some of the more updated versions. But for the most part, any, any English version, if you go to Genesis 1.26, it'll say, and God said... Let us make man in our image and our likeness, you know, to something to that effect. And of course, there's plurality there, you know, us, our, um, who is he talking to? And of course, theologians will work up all kinds of excuses and explanations, but they're all futile because the actual fact of the matter is the reason there's plurality there is because the, the Hebrew word that was used was Elohim. 
So if you were to plug that back in, what's actually being stated is, and the Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, keep in mind, again, the, the, the compilers of the Old Testament, as I'll detail a little more in a bit, were from ancient Mesopotamia. They understood their ancestors way more than we do. They were born out of the Canaanite world. They were born out of um, the ancient Middle East. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, the Sumerians were their ancestors, and they were closer in proximity in time to them. So they, they knew these stories that had been lost to us. And so interestingly, in all the Sumerian stories where mankind is being created, there's about three instances that are available to us now. There's probably more, but you know a lot of it's been lost. But in the three various instances that you can find, we're always created either through a mixture of what's called clay and their blood or just blood or just clay. Um, but there's a Sumerian Akkadian text titled The Creation of Humankind. And um, as I read here verbatim, it states... Let us create humankind from their blood, meaning um, these lower ranking Anunnaki that are part of the story. Their labor shall be labor for the gods to maintain the boundary ditch for all time, to set the pickaxe and work basket in their hands, to make the great dwelling of the gods worthy to be their sublime sanctuary for celebrating the gods' festivals as they should. Let us create humankind from their blood. That's basically the same thing as saying, let us create mankind in our image after our likeness. That's what a likeness is. It's blood, it's genetics, it's, it's genes. And that's why Zechariah, that's why Zechariah Sitchin took that and, and created this whole theory that we were genetically designed by them. So again, our, whoever wrote the Old Testament, which to this day, we don't even know who, whoever compiled it, obviously knew these stories and were, were kind of um, putting them in there in their own version from their own Israelite perspective, if you will. Wow. Yeah. And it puts a whole new meaning to, he came down from the mountain, you know, who, who was up there on that mountain and, and who wrote all of that? Cause yeah, it is, it is fascinating. And I didn't even realize I, I bought the Nag Hammadi uh, text recently. I found it at a bookstore and, it's like, oh, wow, it's a fully translated edition. This is cool. Put it in the collection. But um, I'm sure you're aware the Nag Hammadi is sort of apocryphal texts that didn't make their way past the many, uh, you know, corrections that were made to the Bible, corrections. And, uh, and are there any passages in there that reveal this sort of Anunnaki theory? And if I'm taking us too far astray off the path, we could come back to this uh, later. Um, I have, as crazy as it may sound, I have yet to fully dive into the Nag Hammadi and Gnostic Gospels. I have studied them um, briefly just because I've had to for the last two books that I've wrote. So I'm, I'm very familiar with, with the historicity behind them and, and, you know, the main messages and what they involve, but I have, I haven't, um, gone deep into them yet, mm. but there is something that relates to it that we can get into. Well, and I did, did write about, well, Archon and, and Elohim seem similar, you know, and even like, uh, this, the word archetype has kind of, you know, arc has made its way into our world's language, English language, as a sort of old 
uh, authoritarian, you know, I'm just kind of playing word association here, but like when you think of that arc, whatever it's ahead of, whichever word it, it makes, usually make something, you know, like that's kind of elite yeah. almost, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm speculating Arc too angels. much. Exactly. I, that's exactly where I was kind of going, which is like the more Christianized version of what we're discussing here. So, so yeah, it, it's certainly been discussed. I mean, I'm sure in the Eastern religions and even in the new world religions, you can find parallels, but, uh, but we won't get too bogged down on that just yet. <laughs> for sure. For sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, the way I view like the Gnostic stuff, the way I view it is these, these were people that were, that were Hellenistic. They were coming out of the Hellenistic era. So they were a mixture of the Judaic culture, the Greek culture, the, some of some Aramaic and, and early Christian, um, cultures so to me like the whole gnostic stuff was like a psychedelic blend of, of, of an approach to all of the world's knowledge and wisdom at that time mm. and that's why they're so wild you know because the a lot of it to me is is based on um like greek philosophy mm. and, and stuff like that specifically more specifically the um the Gnostic stuff. Right. Because yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls is more so, um, Ju is a mixture between the Judaic culture and the very, very early Christian culture. And it's like a psychedelic spin on that. Right. And then the Nag Hammadi is more closer tied to Egyptian um, and, and Greek philosophy. So it's like, that's the way I view that stuff. It's it's very fascinating. It's, it's dope. But it's like a psychedelic blend on all of the world's wisdom at that time. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective because me, I know of these things, but I have yet to like go in and put them into context. So this is very helpful. So yeah, let's let's get back on on track. So we're sure. we're talking about the Anunnaki. We're talking about their sort of role in maybe uh, orchestrating human affairs. They're them making us in their likeness. Do you think that? Sitchin was off when he suggested genetic manipulation. Do you think maybe it was more like what we see with UFO abductees where it seems like they're like, I mean, they kind of do take genetic material from people, but it seems like from the older contactee experiences that they're sexual, right? Like you have like these women's spirits, succubi, or you have like these man spirits coming in at night and like mating with these people and, you know, we don't have to even go into the whole virgin birth concept, but that's pretty much what we're talking about. So are, do you think it's something more like metaphysical than purely like them in a laboratory, like slicing DNA apart? Yeah, I think he was, Citron was definitely onto something. You know, I think he was definitely onto something. And our ancestors, the Sumerians, fascinatingly tell us that we were created by these beings by mm. a mixture of their blood right you know whether, whether that really happened or not we are told that it was just through a mixture of their blood and um in some cases in later stories they started having children among us and that's where you get the whole div divine right to rule thing and then that story even made it into the bible you know we're, we're all familiar with that whole nephilim and story and and that story again is just a rendition of this whole thousands of years prior to it of the anunnaki so um what do i think i, th I think it was a i think it was more so like a mating thing mm -hmm. you know but 
the Sumerian texts do talk about, in, in the Enki and Ninma texts, do talk about when they were creating us, specifically Enki and his uh, half-sister slash goddess Ninma, um, when they were creating us in some sort of laboratorical environment that they had to go through trials. You know, they were creating like monster people, deformed people, disabled people, several of them before they perfected it and got to us, which I thought was very interesting because if it was just some like mythical tale of creation, it would have been like the Bible where everything was perfect and we were created perfect the first time. But it was like this very rudimentary, like experimental thing. Like, oh man, we, we fucked up. Let's throw that one away. You know? So it's like, there were obviously people like, dealing with with not very um reliable tools or methods Mm. yeah it does seem like it wasn't like a totally orderly process you have all these monsters being like spawned chaotically and we're all familiar with the folklore and the motif of dragons and monsters giants and all of that stuff was so much more prevalent in our cultures worldwide uh, and especially uh in europe mostly because you know our english language comes from there it's a little easier to trace some of that at least for me and uh yeah it's it seems like there was a time when people were dealing with way more entities i mean i've even heard interpretations that enki who you just mentioned uh is like the precursor or great ancestor of what we now might call Sasquatch, right? It was like this, he was like this hairy, wild version of his brother Enlil, right? There was Enki and Enlil, and they were kind of like almost Gemini in the way that they both resembled each other, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. I haven't heard that one. Enki is the, is the great Yeti. <laughs> well, it's interesting because another person uh, that I heard on uh or actually that i read in the secret history of the world by mark booth great book i'm sure you're familiar i probably recommended it on this show a thousand times but uh someone recently recommended a book to me on instagram i think they even said they're sending it to me i'm not sure but um but they suggest that in ancient prehistory neanderthals and humans were fighting each other and the Neanderthals that survived became what we now consider Sasquatch. And it is interesting to to think about what they're saying by creating humans with blood, because you, you might imagine that they would have to have something to work with first in order to, to tr- you know, like they're not just throwing blood on the ground and a human grows out of it. Like that's not how you make a living being. So obviously they didn't know about DNA specifically back then, but, uh, or they hadn't scientifically discovered it the way we have. Maybe they did, who knows, but either way, um, it's remembered as, as a sort of blood sort of, we share that with them, right? We're not disconnected. We're not, it's not like us and a crab or us and a, a elephant. It's like, us and a chimpanzee like we're just so close you know might seem like oh wow chimpanzee they can't drive cars they can't work iphones but (laughs) they're genetically like so close to us it's astounding uh i feel like i'm i'm making sense (laughs) am i taking us too far away from where we're trying to go (laughs) no actually what you just said is almost perfect so i have a whole presentation i have a presentation but um not going to go through everything um, I do talk about in my book, you know, how we even got to discover Sumerians, 
you know, Sumerian language, the process of deciphering it, you know, so if you want to learn more about that, you know, check out my book or check out some of the other podcasts I've done. But that's very important, too. It's like we've only known about the Sumerian text for about 150 years. And there's a whole you know, part in my book where I talk about how we went through that, that process of, of uncovering it and deciphering it. But if we keep that in mind, too, this is very fascinating. We've only known this stuff for about 150 years, if that. And it's estimated that about half a million to a million tablets have been uncovered during that time. And only 10%, they say, has been deciphered. But I can tell you right now that 10% is not being publicly disseminated because you'll only find the same recycled, you know, 50, if that, tablets online, you know, so something is, is missing here. Um, yes, but, rings of like the Council of Nice, of the Council of Archaeologists who are, you know, holding all this stuff back. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't think many people realize that when we're talking about these stone tablets that there's that many. I certainly didn't. I thought it was just like one or two cases where they found these and they're like oh wow here they are but you're saying there's possibly thousands of these hundreds of these well yeah i, I looked up online through different sources and, and um they all pretty much agree that it's been estimated that at least half a million of tablets have been pulled out of the ground since wow. we first discovered sumer Five hundred thousand. wow that's incredible i had a yeah. i had a similar um moment recently we found a book that showed us that there are so many more mounds here in the United States than you can find in even like, you know, um, books that were written by, you know, not biased people. I mean, there's thousands of them. They're just so forgotten, but that's off topic. Anyways. <laughs> well, I wanted to go back to what you just said a little while ago about um, like uh, us being created and that there, there had to be other people there and stuff like that. And interestingly, so again, in my book too, I also detail kind of like who the Sumerians were and what their lifestyle was like, because we always hear about the Anunnaki, Anunnaki, but we forget to, you know, uh, pay respect to the Sumerians who are the people who wrote about them. And, and so it's so easy to like disassociate from them because all we think about is the Anunnaki, but the people we should really be studying are the Sumerians because they were real people. They were real flesh and blood people for sure. And not only were they real, but they were our ancestors. And we their their stuff is still there, still they're still talking to us. So I do detail, you know, who they were and what they were like, which I think is important also, and their downfall. And interestingly, they they wrote about their downfall too. And in what is known as the Lamentation of Ur, written about 2000 BC, um, we learn about this group of people called the Gudians. And they were like these these uh, raving um, barbarians that actually brought about brought about the destruction of Sumer. And I'm going to quote from it right here. It says, "On its boulevards, where festivals had been held, heads lay scattered in all its streets where walks had been taken. Corpses were piled in its places where the dances of the land had taken place. People were stacked." in heaps they made the blood of the land flow down the, the the streets like copper or tin its corpses left like fat in the sun melted away of themselves now um that's talking about the destruction but i skipped a passage here now now this is a coming from a babylonian version of that also that, that same event known as the curse of agade and 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 
This is where we learn about the Gudians. Enlil brought out of the mountains those who do not resemble other people, who are not reckoned as part of the land, the Gudians, an unbridled people with human intelligence, but canine instincts and monkeys' features. Like small birds, they swooped on the ground in great flocks. Because of Enlil, they stretched their arms out across the plain like a net for animals. Nothing escaped their clutches. No one left their grasp. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, that definitely sounds like uh, Sasquatch or Neanderthals or, or I mean, even like, you know, not to bring up uh, another tangent, but the barbarian, Tartarian, Mongols even, like this idea of a, a lesser civilized from Western civilization's perspective, uh, uh, you know, brutes. Even the Vikings have this same reputation. It's interesting. There's been like this clash of of like wild versus tame or domesticated humans going all the way back then I, or i mean even if i mean who knows if they're humans i mean we've found evidence for uh different species of uh humanoid across the ancient world right so yeah wow that's fascinating so yeah the, the, man and the, so this is go ahead well <laughs> You, I feel like you stopped at the climax of that story. They, they're in their grasps. Do they make it out alive? What happens next? Well, that's I, I skipped ahead. I read the the, the next passage first. Oh, here. So, yes. so but um, it's the one that I read before it about you know there being blood in the streets and stuff right, like right, that. Right. So the, the Sumerians did not make it out alive. Yeah. So so I detail the Sumerians in my book. Um, won't go into it too much right now, but basically. Um, what you should know is that the Sumerians are the oldest known civilization to us right now. Um, obviously, there's stuff older than them, like Gobekli Tepe, and we've, we're starting to find some writings that are older than theirs. But um, as of right now, they are the oldest known structured civilization, and they go back to about uh, 4000 BC, if that. And they're just fascinating people, but they were never unified as a kingdom. They were never like a, a one kingdom. They were always city-states warring amongst each other like gangs. There was always one leader here, a leader there, fighting each other. And because of that, they were vulnerable to outside attacks because they were never unified. And so that's what brought about their destruction. So this tale of the Gudians, these weird monkey people, is, is about... The first time they were overtaken, well, sorry, actually, no, the first time they were overtaken was actually by Sargon of Akkad. So Sargon of Akkad actually came through and overtake the Sumer overtook the Sumerian Empire because of that vulnerability. And then after he took it over, um, Akkad, which was still comprised of the Sumerian people too, was taken by these, these barbarian people. And then after that, they never just really recovered. And it was always just kind of chaotic until the Babylonians came and just said, fuck all of this we're taking over the new world order in this in this whole <laughs> the, the babylonians were the the first new world order check that out my pin on my jacket says new world order with the cross out of crossing it out what are the odds but geez sargon what was this the last part of his name sargon the, sargon of a cod right so First of all, Sargon makes me think of Lord of the Rings, but Akkad, does that have any connection to the Akkadians, the Akkadians, this group of people? Precisely. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was the first ruler of the of the Akkadians. Wow. And I, he has a very strange story, too, that I talk about. Uh, apparently, we, we don't know his real name. He called himself Sargon, which means like legitimate ruler, 
like yo like like little legit big legit whatever <laughs> you know and um he's actually the one the Akkadians are actually the ones who gave the Sumerians their name the Sumerians called themselves the Sagiga which means the black-headed people but the Akkadians called them the Sumerians which meant land of the kings and Sargon is an interesting dude. So, so according to the texts that we have available, which are like somewhat autobiographical texts, his mother was a priestess of the temple of Inanna, and he never knew his father. So it was kind of like an immaculate conception kind of situation, or at least it's implied. And because she was a priestess, when she became pregnant, she had to hide that. And then when she had him, when he was born, she put him in a basket and floated him down a river. Again, a whole like Moses-like story. Mm. And he was found by a gardener, a Sumerian gardener named Aki. And Aki raised him and then Sargon became strong and realized his power and who he was and, and appealed to the people because he was like raised humbly as opposed to the, the arrogant Sumerian kings that were battling at the time who were always justifying what they were doing through the Anunnaki, you know, and, and they told me I could do this. Enki said I can do this. Sargon was like, I'm, I'm a man of the people. I was, I was raised by Aki the gardener, you know, but he was also semi-divine because of his mom being a priestess. And so he took, took that uh, approach and, and was able to unify the kingdom for some time, for a short time. He ruled for 50 years. And then and what was crazy is one of the first things he did actually was institute his daughter and Heduana as the high priestess of the temple of Ur um, under the goddess Inanna. So um, the, he wor- the Akkadians primarily worshipped the goddess Inanna as opposed to the, the, the male deities that were being worshipped by the Sumerians. But um, so, so going from wow. there, right? So yeah, that's, that's just a little history, you know, and there's more in the book and well, there's more out there. Yeah, there's, I mean, you just struck a chord with me because there's this ley line that Peter Shampoo uh, showed me when he was on this show and he's written about it in his book. It's called the Acadian Ley Line and it goes through uh, basically all the major cities on the East Coast of the United States and then up over the Atlantic Ocean in the north and then through Stonehenge and then down into the land of the kings. And I wonder if maybe the word king meant something different back then. And maybe it was like, um, maybe denoted like a center or central. Cause I mean, we are talking about the central area of the known world, right? I mean, this is sort of like the epicenter of everything. And, and even today in our schools, we're told that, Oh, this is the cradle of civilization. This is where it all started. Don't, think about the aborigines don't think about the people in you know south africa or china or anywhere else it all happened right here and i think that's it's part of the the programming right because you see these rulers in the land of kings you know start to figure out okay how do we really build this civilization how do we really craft a, a prosperous civilization and uh, enslave people while doing it, right? Because that seems to be the main modus operandi. A lot of people say the Anunnaki created us to be uh, their slaves, but it sounds like people were pretty reverent towards them. It doesn't sound like they were oppressed by these beings. So do you think that's been like sort of mistranslated or, or, or is there more to the story? Were, were the Anunnaki's enslaving us or exploiting us? It, it's it's complex because we, as you said, we had a different 
respect for them and their different view on life altogether. Life back then was entirely, entirely revolved around the worship of these people, these beings. And we were fine with that. You know, everything that we had was because of them. So we were okay being their servants to a degree. Um, so yeah, we, we admired them for sure. And there's, there's two major things I want to get into towards the last part of this, this episode, and um, they're going to be pretty beefy. Um, so, but before I get into those last two things um, on that note, yeah, we need to understand that our ancestors, these Sumerians, these Mesopotamians admired these beings wholeheartedly. And again, this, this, this was almost the entirety of our current timeline. You know, we've only been monotheistic and liberal, you know, in a larger sense for like 2000 years, if that, I mean, less than that on the liberal side of things, you know, the liberal, the liberal um, aspect of spirituality has only been around since, you know, basically the 1600s, um, you know, with the onset of like these secret societies and shit like that, you know, like the Rosicrucians and the Illuminati's and the Freemasons. And those guys are really the ones that kicked off liberalism and uh, kind of birthed what we have today with, with the, the, the rights and the freedoms that we have. But that's a whole nother topic. Mm. But what I'm saying is like we've, we've been, you know, the, the life we live now is very, very new for thousands and thousands of years, for more than half of our human existence in the current timeline, we were worshiping the Anunnaki. Mm. And well, and it, um, it seems like this template has carried over into our society. I mean, the, the word Samaritan literally comes from this, this civilization. It means a person in Sumer, right? So something to that extent, but, uh, you're great. You're a great guest. You're good at rolling with my punches because I feel like I've like twisted your presentation. We've gone into <laughs> all these and you, I sense you're like, all right, so let's get back to it. And I keep pulling you away from it, but you're doing great. I love the, the differences that you get from show to show. And I think the audience appreciates that. I know I do when I'm listening to a show, I like hearing how different hosts different interact with different guests and we want to leave stuff out. Remember, we want people to buy your book. So it's okay if we don't get to all of it. <laughs> For sure. But the, there is at least, there is one thing I really, really want to let it. people know, but we'll get to that. Um, the last thing I want to hit though, I guess on the whole Anunnaki and the Samaritans is right now, the, the oldest available text to us um, <clears throat> actually belongs to the Sumerians. The oldest text in general belongs to the Sumerian culture, and it is known as the Kesh Temple Hymn. It's about, it's, it comes from about 2600 BC. Again, the oldest known text. And what it comprises of is the Anunnaki and some various priests setting up this temple for some kind of ceremony. And I, I quote it in my book and stuff like that, and I'll read a little bit right now. It's, so in, in one of the lines, it says, the house whose lords are the Anuna gods, whose Nuek priests are the sacrificers of N priests, holds the lead rope dangling. The Atu priest holds the staff. The dot, dot, dot brings the dot, dot, dot waters. The dot, dot, dot takes his seat in the holy place and the Enkum priests bow down. So there's this weird scenery going on of, of the gods and his priests setting up some ritual. And again, this is the oldest known text. So, 
there's something going on in our ancient past with these gods and, and the worshiping of them and stuff like that. And going to Sumer, the Anunnaki loved Sumer in the Enki and World Order text, which is just as old as the Kesh Temple hymn, or almost as old. And um, we see here in the opening line or one of the lines, Sumer, great mountain, land of heaven and earth, trailing glory, bestowing powers on the people from sunrise to sunset. Your powers are superior powers, untouchable, and your heart is complex and inscrutable. And it goes on and on. So the Anunnaki obviously loved Sumer, loved their people, loved their subjects, and, and that love was reciprocated by our ancestors. But now I'd like to shift from there and go into what happened. Why don't we worship the Anunnaki anymore? Where are they? You know, how did we go from worshiping these beings for, you know, 5,000 years, basically, to now being monotheistic and run by governments and stuff like that? What happened? So <clears throat> what's interesting is that a lot of theologians and scholars even will place Abraham, right, the patriarchic father of all the Abrahamic faiths, as a contemporary with Hammurabi, the Babylonian king who brought, you know, the quote-unquote first laws, which he didn't really, but, you know, whatever. Um, so if he's a contemporary of Hammurabi, that would place him about like 14 or 1500 BC, I believe. And that's interesting because Hammurabi was still worshiping the Anunnaki. The opening line of his uh, law code is a praise to Anu and Enlil by name, which is crazy because I remember reading about that in high school or reading about Hammurabi and his law code in high school, but I, I never saw the Enlil or Anu part of it or anything. But if you read it verbatim, it starts off with him praising the Anunnaki by name. So if Abraham was a contemporary to, Amra, uh, to, to Hammurabi, he must have been aware. He must have been aware of the Anunnaki, and he was, as I will show. Um, you see here. Sorry, I'm going through my presentation. There's like a whole big section uh, on like the Book of Enoch and how it was hidden um, in the right Bible, on. and that's a hu huge aspect of this too, which I get into my book. Mm. Cool, yeah. But um, just in case we don't have enough time to get into that, I just definitely want to cover this this monotheistic part of it. We got but, all the time you need, bro. I'll sit here and listen all night. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I appreciate that, but I don't. I don't have all the time. Oh, well, I understand that. So let's get to it. For sure. For sure. <clears throat> Let me see. So, all right. So the Bible tells us that you know the the Israelites before the Torah was given to them, were polytheistic. And I, I described this a little bit in my Lucifer book, but um, Judaism wasn't instituted until after the Babylonian exile. So prior to the Babylonian exile around 600 BC, you know, the Israelites were still forming. Judaism was still forming. It was loose. They, they weren't worshiping one God yet. There was, there were, because they were coming out of that old Anunnaki world, that polytheistic world, which was the world of their ancestors who worshiped these beings. Right. And um, in the Bible, we're told that Abraham is, he, Abraham is pretty much regarded as the first Jew in the Bible. He's the first one to like actually make a covenant with what would become Yahweh. And we're told in the Bible that he he was told by God to leave his his homeland to to set this journey um, towards the the Holy Land, which Moses would later take on. But we're told that he was from 
He was Abraham from Ur Kasdim. He was from Ur Kasdim or Ur of the Chaldees. And this is something that a lot of scholars have tried to break down. You know, what, what does that mean? But what we know for sure is that Sumer's, Sumer's capital was Ur. So we know of an Ur in ancient Mesopotamia. It was the capital of Sumer. So we can almost infer that Abraham was a Sumerian. But some scholars try to like play it off. I've read some some um, some essays and stuff. Some of them try to play it off like, no, it wasn't the Ur of Sumer. It was this other Ur or whatever. This so there's a lot of uh, you know conjecture there. But nonetheless, um, the word Chaldees or Chaldea in all you know old um, his, histor, uh, history was always used as a title for the general area of Babylon or, or Mesopotamia. So nonetheless, Abraham was a, a Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamian, obviously. But interestingly, in Joshua 24, we read, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So Abraham's father, his own father, worshipped other gods. Who are these other gods? None other than the Anunnaki. They had to have been. There were no other gods in that time in history other than the Anunnaki. Right. Now, you said his father and who? Was that another name for his father? Or is that they're they're referring to his mother as the whore? Who's the whore? (laughs) <laughs> no, not a whore. Um, Nahor, N-A-H-O-R. Oh, okay, that I think that's very that elucidates me and everyone else's whose minds was in the gutter. like, oh, okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> For sure, I think that's Abraham's brother or something. It says Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. Nahor. Okay, thank you. For sure. For sure. And. So to go on more on that point about the other gods, you know, we're all familiar with that whole, you know, God is a jealous God thing, you know, that comes out of the book of Exodus. Right. I am the I am the only God or that you should worship, but he doesn't sort of negate the fact that there are other gods. He just says I'm the most important one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and in the book of Isaiah, it is stated in Isaiah 19:18 that Hebrew is the language of Canaan. And that's true in, in history. Um, historians have found that the earliest forms of Hebrew are almost indistinguishable from Phoenician, which was was the culture and language of, of uh, the Canaanite people. Right. So, again, you know, we need to understand that the early Israelites were being, you know, formulated out of this old Anunnaki world, this old Anunnaki mindset. And the Bible says that exactly. Um, it just doesn't use the word Anunnaki. Mm-hmm. Now, getting into the Israelites and who they were, so the the earliest mention of Yahweh outside of the Bible occurs in what's known as the Moabite Stone, also known as the Mesha Stella, uh, discovered in 1868 in Jordan, written in the 9th century BC. And it says, and from there I took Yahweh's vessels and I presented them before Kamosh's face. Kamosh was the, the 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 god of King Mesha. So what's that set? What what that is saying is that this guy King Mesha found these people and took 
their relics to their god Yahweh and and basically took them back to his temple. And this is in nine the ninth century BC, you know, the eight hundreds, um, which is basically two hundred years or or more before the Torah was put together. And um, there's another inscription, it, older than that, um, coming out of uh, the 14th century BC, in an inscription um, in a temple built by Amenhotep III. And in that inscription, there's, again, talk of a subjugation of what, what are known as the Shasu of Yahweh. Um, so there were these nomadic people known as the Shasu who lived in the, in the Sinai area close to Egypt and also close to the Middle East, known as the Shasu who worshipped Yahweh. And that's very important because the Bible itself tells us that the, the name Yahweh was first presented and revealed to the world, specifically to Moses, in the Sinai desert. So... Um, yeah. Damn. Yeah. And so in Exodus 6 2, God says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. So right there, God is telling Moses, I've been around, but your ancestors knew me as a different name. And he says, they knew me as El Shaddai which is very important. And before I go into that, um, there's another inscription, an earlier one in the 8th century BC um, in, in the Sinai area that says, I bless you by Yahweh of Taman and by Asherah. May he bless and keep you and may he be with my Lord forever. It's a small inscription that we found, um, again, in the Sinai desert area. But in, this one's very fascinating because it couples Yahweh with with the goddess Asherah, showing this polytheistic, you know, uh, belief system of the early early uh, Israelites who who might have been these Shasu people of, of the Sinai uh, desert. But going back to um, Exodus and, and God saying that you know your ancestors knew me as El Shaddai, very very uh, important thing there. It's a clue because El Shaddai and El in general comes from the Canaanite world, the Canaanite world, that the head of the Phoenician um, and Canaanite pantheon was El. And the word El goes even all the way back to the Akkadian times with the form Il. Um, and it's also pronounced Ilu, Ilum, and Ilah, and uh, could even possibly be the old Arabic root for the word Allah. Wow. Illuminate. Illum, wow, yeah, that's incredible. Luminosity, I mean, there's so many words that denote light that that follow that track too. I mean, and then you bring in the the L thing, and L goes into you know a lot of different other related meanings, similar meanings. So, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so all of this is showing us that for one, the Israelites, you know, the the precursor the ancestors of the jews the modern jews and and the judeo-christian the whole the entire judeo-christian structure were born out of the canaanite world they were born out of the old phoenician the old mesopotamian the old anunnaki world and yahweh wasn't always this monotheistic being but he was actually just another god that was a part of this and so transitioning from that 
Now we'll go into monotheism and how it got instituted and why it got instituted and why it's still so strong. So again, the the uh, the Jews or the Israelites, however you want to word it, were were very loose and polytheistic prior to the Babylonians descending upon them um, around the 600, 600 BC, and at that time they were they were loose and and just like their predecessors, the Sumerians, they were vulnerable because of that. They weren't unified. There was the upper and lower kingdom. And so the Babylonians came and subjugated them and took all of their elite back to Babylon. And it was during the Babylonian captivity and specifically after that they decided it was time to unify under a common law, under a common belief, which would be the Torah and monotheism. But interestingly, there was a lot of events in history that kind of set Judaism up to become very, very successful. And the first thing was uh, Cyrus the Great freeing them from their Babylonian captivity. After the Persians took over, Cyrus the Great allowed them the choice to practice their beliefs freely. He, he, he told them that they could either stay in Babylon or they can go back home. It was up to them. And there was actually a, a branch of, of, early, um, Judaic, of an early Judaic priesthood that stayed in Babylon, which, you know, birthed like the, the Babylonian Talmud and all that stuff. And then the other ones left back home. But uh, Cyrus was, was genius. He was a genius, a political genius, because what he did was he allowed his subjects to practice their own beliefs. He was, he was religiously tolerant, but he went a step further. The kingdom went a step further. And the Bible details this. A later ruler known as Artaxerxes gave a letter to the prophet and um, elder Ezra. And in that letter, Artaxerxes tells Ezra, um, look, you're the elder of your people. You know your God. You know your people. Take the law of your God back to your people and govern them, govern them, but make sure that your laws and your people also are in line with our laws of the kingdom. So what he was saying, what he was doing was, was basically making all these different areas of, his, of the vast kingdom self-governing. So monotheism was instituted to eradicate all of that chaoticness of, poly, of polytheism and, and, and warring ideologies and unified everybody, organized everybody under one guide, one rule, one government. Monotheism was used to institutionalize one government, one structure. Wow. It was an easy way to get people to be self-governed. Mm. Right, and you describe this uh, atmosphere of like warring tribes and and chieftains, and it's interesting. You see that all over the world, except for in these areas that have been affected by monotheism. So, wow, I mean, that's incredible. It is like a, you know, when you think about it, whether they manipulated our genes or not, they certainly have manipulated our minds. Right? They've they've warped us from whatever we were in the primal world till now and you know when we talk about the past atlantis and lemuria come into the picture and i've always wondered like and again we don't have to go down this whole ta tangent but i'd like to know your thoughts on it um you know do you think that we're more like devolving like we were greater as human beings before these anunnakis interceded or do you think maybe we were it's sort of like the reverse where they you know, we were more primitive, 
and they've helped us evolve into what we are now. Because when we learn about things like Atlantis and Lemuria, I mean, obviously there's less evidence for these things than there is what we're talking about here. Uh, but it you know brings to mind like these like lost memories. You know, it feels good as human beings for some reason to like like we're nostalgic about it. Yeah, I think this earth has definitely produced many, many different civilizations. Mm. And we're just a sliver in, in that whole expanse of time. Right. You know, even the modern timeline that we're, we're a part of is only about 6,000 years, starting with the Sumerians. And we all we already know that that's not where it starts. You know, Gobekli Tepe is at least nine to 12,000 years, you know, uh, they say. So... Yeah, but there's obviously a lot of history well, missing. And, and More specifically, could you say that maybe the Anunnaki and the Atlantean kings could be like the same idea, maybe just from a different language, like the Greeks called them Atlanteans, but the Sumerians called them Anunnaki? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think it's all just like a amalgamated memory of them and, and, and the cataclysm that occurred before they came here mm. and i'll get into that towards the end of the presentation oh, cool. about what my, my final thoughts are on them and that whole thing but uh no great question though all right on. well yeah let's get uh back to our last jumping off point i know i keep taking us off course <laughs> it's all good um so yeah so after the babylonian exile monotheism was instituted for as i say the first time in the world through judaism with the help of king cyrus the great and it's funny because the bible attributes his gracefulness to yahweh they say oh he was the anointed of yahweh in the bible but we've actually uncovered uh what's known as the cyrus cylinder back in 1879 which is actually tells us about that tale tells us about it and everything but from his perspective and in Cyrus's perspective, uh, it was actually the Anunnaki that he was doing it for. In the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, uh, Cyrus the Great um, talks about Marduk. I'll read it right here. He says, Marduk, the exalted, the Lord of the gods, turned towards all the habitations that were abandoned, and he searched everywhere, and then he took a righteous king, his favorite, by the hand. He called out his name, Cyrus, king of Babylon, king of Sumer, and Akkad and the four quarters of the world. So even as Judaism was being formed, the Anunnaki were still being worshipped by, by King Cyrus, so they weren't completely phased out yet. But, um, of course, the Persians were overtaken by uh, the Greeks, and by the time the Greeks came along, Judaism was fortified. It had its priesthood running, it had its mythology, it had its book, it had its wisdom. The old world was was crumbling. The Sumerians were way gone, um, as, long, uh, as well as the Akkadians. And uh, the Babylonians had just been defeated, you know, uh, not that long ago, too. So by, so by the time the Greeks had, had uh, gotten onto the scene, the Judaism was a new force in the world, and it, and it held a lot of mystique. And just like the Persians, the Greeks were tolerant towards the Jews, and uh, they made allies of them. Spe- specifically philosophical allies 
And um, that's why the Hebrew Old Testament was translated for the first time in Greek. The first language it was ever translated in was in Greek. And there's a story that there's an ancient story that's told that I uh, recount in my book about a priest at that time when, when um, Alexander was was taken over the kingdom, who was so prolific that Alexander even bowed down before him. So Alexander had respect for the Jewish priesthood at that time and even bowed down before their priests and was like, yo, we respect you, we see you, and helped assimilate them into the Greek world. And that's when the Hellenistic era was born and then the meshing of those worlds was created. And a lot of beautiful poetry and philosophy was born out of that. And so the Jews, right, the, the, the Judaic priesthood were very lucky in that sense so they were able to last these different through these different epics of time. You know, the old world, Anunnaki world, um, the Persian era, uh, and then the Greek era. And then, they, of course, during the Roman era, too. And then after all of that was destroyed through the oncoming of the Byzantine era and then the modern era of Christianity and all this craziness, they were able to survive all of that to this very day. And that's why... They they have been so so successful because they are, are deep rooted, and they found their success in monotheism. They found their success finally in being unified, you know. And um, so slowly through the process of, of Judaism and Christianity, because Christianity took the same blueprint um, through Constantine and, and his dynasty. You know, there was a lot of paganism going on at the time, a lot of Gnosticism, a lot of craziness, and they were all phased out, killed, murdered, whatever. Once the institution of Christianity was born, it took the same blueprint and said, you know what, we got all this craziness going on. Let's just wipe it all out and make it one God, one law, one government. It took the same blueprint. And even more than that, the two religions are connected. It's like a prequel and a sequel, Judaism and Christianity. And then you have the third version, which is Islam, because Islam is based on the Abrahamic faiths also. It's very, very similar. It's actually an addition to it. You know, that's why they call Muhammad the final prophet. You know, Jesus is quoted, I guess, hundreds of times in the in the Quran and this, this, and that. So it's it's the third addition to it. It's, it's the final one. Um, so all of them were kind of just following the same suit and just kind of just wiping the entirety of all the religions in the past out, demonizing them, and subsequently phasing out the Anunnaki, subsequently phasing out our entire connection to our ancestors and what they had to tell us by saying, don't pay attention to it. You don't need to know that. This is the new revelation. This is the new law. This is the new God. Mm, wow. Now, <clears throat> You're bringing to mind a concept that I've learned about through esoteric history studies of this sort of um, density, right? There's, there's this density state that we're in right now that may not have been the case back then. And, and the suggestion is that these gods of the old world were of a sort of gaseous state or a higher vibrate vibrational state they were flesh they were tangible like we were because we were in that state as well the whole world was uh, but as we densified as a, a, a world they sort of phased out and became invisible somehow right that's sort of paraphrasing to a large degree but in so many words that's what i can recall from 
from one particular book on the subject, but I have seen it in multiple books, this theory suggested. It was a big concept when uh, Theosophy and the Ascended Masters was uh, like really popular in the United States, you know. But um, yeah, it's interesting to to think that these beings may have been benevolent, but then demonized out of of our you know world, so to speak. Is that your view? Is that what you're suggesting that maybe these beings were were not entirely bad? They weren't the the fallen angels that we're told they were. To a degree, you know, it's it's complex. Mm. You know, the, the entire it's. I mean, we're talking about our our entire history here. You know, it's right. A bit like at least six thousand years well, it, to cover. It's almost like you know there are good people and there are bad people. So we we can imagine there's probably good Anunnaki and bad Anunnaki, good gray aliens, bad gray aliens, good Sasquatch, bad Sasquatch. You know, yeah. consciousness follows uh, the whole spectrum. It runs the gamut, but. Yeah, man, this is incredible. So I, I want to ask one more wild ball question before we get back to your your point. And I know you're kind of crescendoing us to a, a grand finale, which I appreciate. Uh, but there's a lot of suggestions that the Anunnaki are associated with this planet Nibiru that is only close to Earth for so many years. And then its orbit goes further out and it's not really near us. And we might be coming to that you know event where they're close again and they're going to be able to revisit the planet is this a part of uh any you know is this part of your theory have you touched on this at all in the book uh very minutely so that's like the the pinnacle of, of sitchin's work mm. you know is, is the nabiru aspect of it all that's what makes him unique is that part of it and I've, I've read his Earth Chronicle series, which I think is like seven books. And I think you need to read the entire series to understand. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you need to read the entire series to like really understand where he's coming from because it's it's deep the way he connects it all. He connects right. all kinds of celestial celestial events, earthly cataclysms, different rituals from different cultures around the world, and different words and all kinds of stuff that point back to it and symbols. So um, that's like the pinnacle of his work. That's that's he ta he takes all the information that we have because he was using the same information any of us can access, and and but formulating it in in that presentation. Mm. And but what I did find is that Nibiru as a word is used in the Sumerian text, and it is used in the Enuma Elish, and that's the primary source that he used to build his theory off of the enuma elish is the cosmological tale about um, basically how our solar system was created if you read it it's it, it reads as if it's like a battle between different gods but it doesn't take much to kind of look into it and realize that it's actually a tale about the planets personified as gods mm. it's very it's very obvious because there's apsu and there's tiamat and there's gaga who's like a little messenger and then there's um, six other planets or six other gods. So it's obviously the sun, the legendary planet Tiamat, Mercury, and then the six planets. And then there's a, the, the other gods or the other planets wage war against Tiamat. It's this whole battle. And then the rogue hero, the protagonist, comes out of nowhere and then sets everything in order. He sets the gods in order, kills Tiamat, so on and so forth. And so Sitchin saw this as this was Nibiru, this was Planet X that got caught into our orbit 
And and when we're reading in a story that he set the other gods in order, that it was conveying to us that this rogue planet, because of its gravitational pull, was pushing and pulling everything into its current orbit that it's in now. And Sitchin um, shows, and also in his book, Genesis Revisited, that there are anomalies in our solar system that would point to a huge planet at some time having crossed through here and causing some sort of bombardment. Mm. And interestingly, in the Anum Elish, um, the protagonist, which is known as Marduk in the in the Babylonian version, cuts Tiamat in half, cuts the antagonist, you know, the, the watery dragon as it's sometimes portrayed, cut her in half. And it says that one half of her was used to create the firmament and um, the other half became the earth. And so Sitchin believes that the firmament in that story is actually the asteroid belt, hmm. which separates the lower waters from the upper waters in the Old Testament. And waters could also be a word for planets because we see that word used throughout the old cosmological tales. So the asteroid belt, if you look at a picture of the solar system, if you you know subscribe to that whole NASA shit or whatever, but um, the asteroid belt actually separates the lower planets from the upper planets and that the Bible tells us that, that it separates the lower waters from the upper waters. But what Sitchin saw this as was that the asteroid belt was the remnants of the other half of Tiamat as the Anuma Elish alludes to and that the smaller half closed up eventually and became earth and this planet just went on its way and so the word Nebu is used in that tale but it's used at the end when this god or, or planet is being praised by the other gods for killing Tiamat and they, I'm paraphrasing, but it says, you are Nibiru, the, the star in the skies that shepherds the other gods or something like that. Which reading that through Sitchin's eyes would be like, oh, this is Planet X, you know, whatever, whatever. But it's a little disingenuous because there are like 49 other titles that he's given apart from that one. So just nitpicking that one as evidence for Nibiru is kind of like stretching it. Right, right. And, and you know, you're not alone in, in that. I, I think a lot of people have found holes in his theories. And if anything, it's, it's, it's indicative of him being kind of like the first to crack this code and maybe uh, having some bias and also being in a world where this sort of stuff is suppressed anyways. It's hard to have an open discourse about these things and and get a real uh feedback you know because you do need other people's minds in on these kind of things like yourself which is why i appreciate this uh tremendously so let's uh yeah let's continue on i don't know how much further along we are but uh yeah if you have more let's hear it for sure, man. Uh, yeah, I'll just have some closing thoughts here on, on um, who I think the Anunnaki really were and what they were. Um, first and foremost, they were not human. And the reason being is because we are human. They were humanoid, but they're not human by our definition. Because we are a mixture of some primordial, you know, um, humanoid or, or neanderthal or something and then so what we view as human we're, we're just a mutt we're a genetic mutt between them and whatever else they use to create us and so by definition they were all together a pure form of some other humanoid species just by definition so they definitely weren't human they were their own subset of, of, of people of being 
look like us or, you know, we look like them, of course. But there's a very, very interesting passage in one of the oldest Sumerian texts that kind of gives us, again, a clue as to who they were and what they were doing here. And it happens in the Enki and World Order text, which is one of the oldest of their texts. That entire text, if you read it, has to do with specifically Enki um, setting up civilization and structuring society and domesticating the the wildlife. And I'll read a couple of uh, excerpts here to give you examples. He organized plows, yokes, and teams. The great prince Enki bestowed the horned ox that follow. He opened up the holy furrows and made the barley grow on the cultivated fields. And in another passage, he creates the calendar, counting the days and putting the months in their houses so as to complete the years and to submit the completed years to the assembly for a decision, taking decisions to regularize the days. Father Enki, you are the king of the assembled people. So in that passage, he's, he's putting it together, the, the days at the time, the calendars. And um, again, this, this is something that our ancestors, our, our oldest of ancestors as of now, wrote down for us. And it's, it's a very strange thing to write down and tell us thousands of years ago. But where it gets really weird is in this passage right here. It says, Enki presented animals to those who have no city to those who have no houses, to the Martu nomads. So if these Anunnaki were magical beings from whatever, you know, they would have just been able to just create things, you know, out of thin air. But in this story, it's very obvious that they're people, they're, they're physical people who are having to go through great lengths to set up farms and and cultivate lands and sit down and write calendars. But in this text, in this passage that I just presented, we, it is stated that Enki gave animals to those who have no city, to those who have no houses, the Martu nomads. So how could the Anunnaki be the, you know, magical first beings of creation and yet there be some nomads existing right beside them? So this tells me, and this is what I conclude in my book, that the Anunnaki were survivors of a cataclysm. They were, they're from here. I'm not going to, you know, take Sitchin's approach. You know, I'm not going to take anything from him. You know, what, what he said and what he, did, what he did was great. But my conclusion is that they were from here. And they survived the cataclysm. And after that cataclysm, they had to restart civilization. And in doing so, they wrote themselves into our current timeline as gods. Wow. Yeah, man. It's, it's definitely a convenient position to be in to, to be able to, to start, you know, hit the reset button and start society the way you want it to be run. It seems like that's what the elite are trying to do here. Uh, the playbook doesn't change, right? They have their, their military bunkers and their hands on the big red button to destroy it all. And, and they could survive it in theory if their bunkers work. But yeah, it's, it's really crazy to see history repeat itself, right? Well, hopefully not, but you get where I'm going with that. You know, with the with the elite and the reset, we're just coming out of the great reset, right? With this new digital world that we're in. And uh, it does feel like 
at least in the past 200 years, we've gone through at least an, a, a, on a mental or spiritual level a sort of cataclysm, you know, in the sense that we've been severed from our connection with Mother Earth, uh, whereas at this junction in time, it seemed like the Earth functioned in a way that was maybe more energetic. I know we haven't gotten into this much in this conversation yet, but uh, megaliths and all these great structures that these beings are said to have taken part in building, I mean, there's, there's still no explanation for those, and and some people have suggested that the planet had more energy before this cataclysm prior to that. So, you know, who knows? Maybe they were trying to preserve something that uh, was essentially not doomed, but a lost cause in the sense that, like, the world was forever changed. Uh, do you touch on the megaliths at all throughout this uh, book? Yeah, well, I go specifically into the Great Pyramid of Giza and the Sphinx um, for a few pages just to make the point that we still don't even know who built the Great Pyramid and right. why and how. And also, I go, all, um, I go through all three of the mainstream pieces of evidence, and each one is not conclusive. Right. The only three pieces of evidence that we have for the Great Pyramid of Giza being built they're all not conclusive. So we still, to this day, don't know who, how, or why. Right. Well, and also all the stuff that's been lost to time and, and human foolishness, right? I mean, the Sphinx itself, you could see it's been maimed, right? It used to look differently, and somebody came and knocked the nose off and did some other stuff, right? We're told Napoleon told some men to shoot the nose off or some crazy story like that. I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting to, to think like how many of these artifacts would have shown evidence for these Anunnaki, but they've been s stolen away uh, by these groups that are preserving history <laughs> more like the, the suppressing history but if they're connected to this monotheistic origin maybe that explains it they don't want us to fall back into the seduction of the anunnaki maybe they know better than us and then they're protecting us or maybe the anunnaki are are manipulating them somehow maybe they want to just maintain like a monopoly over contact with these beings right like like only we can know about them and gain their wisdom. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think those are all fascinating and plausible, plausible theories. You know, to a degree, the imagery and indoctrination that is used in the Abrahamic faiths still upholds them. You know, I mean, it's, it's literally in the Old Testament. You know, they're, they're telling us the exact same story, you know, but they're just not using the same names. Right, right. Well, damn esoteric eddie back again i uh i know you don't have all the time to share with us i appreciate you sharing the time you have shared so uh before you go why don't you tell us where we could pick up the book i i know i'm gonna get a copy is it available physical copy pdf where can we get it absolutely man yeah this was a great time you know, thanks for having me again uh thanks to everybody listening you can get the book on amazon the anunnaki theorem um, and uh, you can check me out on Instagram, uh, Esoteric Eddie, and YouTube, where I have over 40 videos, including full-length documentaries at Esoteric Eddie TV. I also have a documentary version that's already out um, of the book. So if you're not ready to buy it, you can watch it and 
check it out. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm ready to buy it. I want to support you. You've been on the show and and delivered every time you've been here. Uh, if you have another moment, what are your your thoughts on the Anunnaki moving forward? Do you think they return? Do you think they re-emerge? Are they gone to history? Well, um, as a scholar, I was actually hyped to release this book because it's been a lifelong journey researching this topic and as a scholar i'm actually ready to put it away mm -hmm. for now i'm still in love with the topic i'm still going to try and keep up to date with any new information but I i'm moving past that you know and i want to move to other things that, I that are inspiring me right now as a scholar so this book is pretty much like my farewell to that topic as of now you know so if you want to know what i think about it you know, listen to this podcast, read the book, watch the documentary. Those are my final thoughts on that whole entire subject. But as far as do I think they're coming back? Um, I could be wrong, you know, obviously, but I'm going to give my, my great brethren and, and sister and, um, some rest. And I'm going to just say they're, they're gone. They're gone. And the greatest of their work was to pass down what they knew and what, what they were capable of to us. And um, if anything, if there's anything to learn about their their story, it's that we're a part of them. And uh, we have that capability to be strong and, and intelligent and uphold some very high righteous values. Damn. Well said, man. Well said. And I appreciate that perspective because this is a topic that has been mishandled, at least on social media. There's plenty of great podcasts that you can learn about this from but specifically the ones where you've been a guest but uh but yeah it is interesting that that like i said at the beginning it's sort of a mainstream idea when people drift into the world of alternative history and conspiracy everybody thinks they know what the anunnaki are but i think you've proved today that there's so much more to learn even still it's a little disappointing to hear that you're gonna put it to rest for now because there's so many uh, thousands of tablets still untranslated. But if I could ask, do you have something that is fascinating you that's pulling you in a different direction? What's next? Do you want to give us a little hint? Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, right now I'm being pulled towards more, more so studies on consciousness and the fabric of reality. So things are getting kind of more heady and, and spiritual, I guess, mm. in my studies right now. I'm getting ready to release a documentary next weekend, um, or I'm not sure when this is coming out, but I'm going to be releasing a documentary soon on a missing scientist, a, sci a Mexican scientist who's been missing from 1994. And he, he was doing uh, some in-depth studies on telepathy. His name was Jacobo Grinberg. There's really not much in English on him, a lot in Spanish, but not much in English. So as far as I can tell, my documentary is going to be the very first one in English. And um, he's just an amazing guy. The story just amazed me. And actually, it was brought to my attention through one of my supporters on Instagram. So shout out to the homie. I, I get a lot of people sending me stuff. Yo, check this out. Check this out. Yeah. And I love it all. But of course, being busy, I can't check it out all right then and there. But 
when I do, sometimes I'm surprised. Like in this case, I was like, whoa, this is huge. Like this, I got to do something with this. And mm. so I'm releasing that documentary on Jacobo Grimberg. His papers are still available. You can read many of his papers and and what he had to say about telepathy and consciousness. So um, my next book that I'm going to be uh, putting out next next year, God willing, is going to be about just my entire take on on consciousness, the fabric of reality and the simulation theory and where we might go after this. Dude, I love it. And I'd love to have you back on to get into that. And uh, I'm sure the audience is going to be really thrilled as well. Shout out to everybody supporting Esoteric Eddie. Uh, shout out to everybody listening to this show. Maybe they're new to Esoteric Eddie. Like I said, he's been on the show twice before, once on Illuminati Confirmed and once here. So go and check that out. Support the man. Get the book. He's got Lucifer book. He's got Anunnaki Theorem. And now he's taking on consciousness and simulation theory. I had a feeling you were going there. I saw your Instagram post today. So I love it. And uh, everybody listening, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm feeling better. My voice is back to normal and everything is going great big shout out to everyone who's contributed with one-time donation if you'd like to help support the show and help create more episodes of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast donate on cash app venmo or paypal that's not the only way you can support the show Go over and check out our Patreon. We've got dozens of bonus episodes there for you to listen to and videos as well. And of course, if you prefer video, you can go to Rockfin where we have all of our videos and everything is released early for those who support. So please go support the show. It keeps me in front of my laptop working on episodes instead of going and doing some kind of blue collar job because that's what I might end up doing if this podcast doesn't start paying the bills. Help us out on Patreon. Shout out to all 100 of our patrons. We've been growing each month and I'd like to see us double that. Maybe we can get to 200 by the end of the year. So please go support the show on Patreon. You get Illuminati Confirms bonus show. You get the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. And if you'd like, you can sign up to be on the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. Just go check the link in the description. Sign up today. You can tell me all about what you've researched, what you've experienced, what your goals are. Maybe have some questions for me. There's your opportunity. As for me, I'm going to wrap this one up. Thanks to our sponsor. Shout out to the Hit Kit, hitkit.us, the number one way to keep your blunts or joints safe and sound, tucked away right next to your lighter. I used one today on a hike. It was a very easy, convenient way to have a smoke. Kept my blunt nice and safe. Didn't fall out of my pocket. Didn't get crushed as I was moving around, jumping around. So, 
I'm psyched to have their sponsorship. I don't know why I'm a little slow right now. Maybe it's because somebody sent Delta 8 Galaxy Treats. Delta 8 THC Gummies. I think... I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't think they're a sponsor. I think this is a gift. So shout out to whoever sent me the Galaxy Treats. Maybe that's why this intro and outro sounds a little slow. Because I've been eating these Galaxy Treats. It says take one every six hours. I think I've eaten about ten today. So uh, that, that is way beyond the recommended dose. But hey just Delta 8, right? <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Delta 8. I think it's legal everywhere. Galaxy Treats. They got Mars Mango, Starberry, and Blue Raz Rocket. My favorite is the mango. So that's it. We got the Hit Kit. Hello Fresh. This isn't uh, connected to this podcast, but little fun tip for you guys: use the promo code AYG and you get a huge discount. Hello Fresh. I thought, why not try it? You got four meals for fifteen bucks using that promo code. So who knows? Hopefully, Hello Fresh will sponsor this podcast eventually. But right now, we have. Gummies in the mail. Hit kit. Got some other gummies coming in the mail. I can't talk about yet until they come. Unless this Galaxy Treats got sent instead of the mushroom gummies. I don't know. A little confused over here. So email me if you sent the Galaxy Treats. I'd like to thank you properly. And shout out to Esoteric Eddie. He's been on the show three times now, and he also joined us on Wednesday Ultra last Wednesday. Go check that out. Bunch of new episodes coming out soon. We'll be talking about UFOs, Sasquatch. We're going to be talking about the geoheliocentric model. That's right, the geoheliocentric model. Not the geocentric and not the heliocentric, but the geo heliocentric so look forward to those episodes and have a great moment wherever you are in the now Some levitation, so with zero hesitation, as I jump into the spaceship, 
I'm weary from faking like an earthling While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper-run economy I've been playing safe, but safest for the weak or hard way I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait Rest the ego and the frequent themes that keep me seeing life inside a box. Small minds kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk. Uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space. I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes. I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite. And every time I'm peeking, I can see it for an instant. I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh, now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. High and even gotta try. Gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Wait.